Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. If you are going to be in New York on May 21st, you totally need to come hang out with me. That's right. Just like in LA, I am doing a New York show. This is a test show. It's my chance to try out new jokes, new stories, new lessons, new inspiration, new motivation with a live crowd. I'm taking the podcast on the road this summer to cities I didn't get to go to last time. And before I do that, I've got to check out the new material. So I did it on the West Coast. Now I'm going to do it on the East Coast. New York City and surrounding areas, May 21st. The link to tickets is in the show notes of this episode Be sure and grab yours before they're gone. It is a very intimate room, so there aren't a lot of seats, but I hope that you will come and fill one of them. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of our Mastermind series. This is conversations that we have had over the last six years of doing this show with some of the brightest minds in their field. Today, we're talking about leadership. What does it take to grow and lead a team well? How do you master your own mindset as a leader so that you can make sure you're doing a really good job? How do you use those skills and tools and resources to grow your team, to grow your business, and to grow your revenue? We're getting into the conversation today, and we're doing it with some of my favorite teachers in this field. Chris Hogan, Ben Horowitz, who is a managing partner in one of the biggest VC firms in the world, Katie Quinn, who has worked her way all the way up the corporate ladder, Scott Miller, who is giving such good ideas about how we lead well, and each and every one of them is sharing some of their best tips and tricks to help you as a leader. I believe that every single person listening to the show is a leader. You have influence in your own way, in your community, in your church, on your team at work, or in your family. And if you're going to be a leader, continue to arm yourself with things that will help you do the best job you can. Because the first person that we have to lead is ourself. Hi, 
I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. You know, when I was an entrepreneur, I can remember, you know, seeing other entrepreneurs and and, and we were in, you know, the battle days of the of the dot com crash. And I would ask them, you know, hey, how's your how's your company going? And they would be like, oh, it's amazing. It's the greatest experience of my life. <laughs> and then, you know, and I would just think to myself, well, I must be an idiot because my company is all messed up. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, as I kind of went further. First of all, they all went bankrupt, so they were lying to me at the time. But yeah. then as I became a venture capitalist and I meet with entrepreneurs, everybody kind of feels what you're feeling or what you felt. And um, yeah, nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about why you feel that way and, and how it goes and how you deal with it. It's funny because I read, you know, I, I was like you, didn't have a lot of uh, mentors early on and, and read kind of every management book. And Management books are really consistent in telling you, you know, you know, you should delegate, don't be a micromanager, be, you know, empower your people, all these kinds of things. Never uh, yell at somebody in front of other people and so forth. And and they're all um, reasonably good ideas. But it, it was always struck me as weird that kind of the two entrepreneur kind of leaders that I looked up to most, Steve Jobs and Andy Grove, had a lot of famous incidents that were the opposite of that, <laughs> where yeah. like Steve Jobs was always yelling at people in public. And, you know, there's a funny famous incident with Andy Grove where uh, somebody came in late to a meeting and he says to them in front of everybody, you know, you're wasting, you know, the only thing I have in this life is time and you're wasting it. And so I'm like, okay, well, that's like not uh what I read about and how are these two so successful given that. And it really comes down to this idea of wartime and peacetime. And, you know, peacetime is, you know, I'd, I'd say is kind of Google under Eric Schmidt was a very kind of peacetime company where they were trying to create lots of new ideas, empower people to innovate uh, these kinds of things, give them a lot of rope. And, and, and that all is good if you have a monopoly position and you know, you, you're a very strong position and you don't have kind of a burning competition or, or some massive threat coming at you at the time. Um, but if you're fighting for survival, you end up in a different mode. And you know, if you know the history of Apple and, and Intel, you know those, those two fought for survival a lot of the time. Um, where the speed and accuracy of decision-making kind of overrides all those other things that you'd like to have as a manager. Um, and that kind of is wartime. So yeah, you care then about really little details and you wanna be involved in positions and know you're not delegating that all the way, you need to review it. Um, and you know, and you need to train people 
on the battlefield. So if they're doing something that's going to cause difficulty and you need to reset their thinking or reset the culture, like, yes, you may sacrifice them for the good of the whole uh, in a Confucian kind of way. So how you move it is the way I like to phrase it, because, um, you know, you don't really set it and you don't really dictate it even as a leader. You kind of influence it and move it and shape it. Uh, and it was the thing for me as CEO that I struggled with the most. And I can remember kind of starting out, you know, and I asked advice of kind of the kind of really good old time CEOs and they all referred to culture. They would say things like, well, you know, pay attention to the culture, Ben. And I'd be like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> and nobody ever had an answer for that. And the kind of books that I read on it were really narrow in terms of, you know, weird, like very small experiments that have been run in organizational psychology and things like that. And so it was a question that always bothered me and something that I never felt like I did a great job of as CEO. So I really wanted to to get an answer to this question. And, it, and it's a very nebulous thing because culture is, um, you know, it's all these things that really dictate what it's like to work at your company and how your company performs, but aren't in any of the management techniques. So it's not a KPI or an OKR or a mission statement or any of these things that you can learn how to do and read about it. You know, does somebody answer a phone call? You know, do they show up to a meeting on time? Are they late? Do they optimize a business relationship for the price or the partnership? Like, how do they behave when you're not looking? And you know, it just was such a. It ends up being such an important question because there is nothing kind of um, in the conventional way that you can do it, and even the conventional advice you get on culture is all wrong. So people will say, oh, well, you have to have an offsite and you know, decide on your values. And then you put your values in a book and then you tell people you're going to review them and their performance review. Well, like, how do you know they even got that phone call, let alone <laughs> returned it? You don't know that. And so that's not how it works. And so I really wanted to kind of get into that. And it turned out, turns out because it's such a complex systems problem, you really have to get uh, I, I would say the gestalt, you have to understand the whole thing to understand anything. A culture is not a set of beliefs. It's a set of actions, and which is kind of where the title of the book comes from. Like, it's not what you believe. It's not what you say. It's not the values you put on the wall. It's not what you tweet. It's what you do. It's what you do. That's yeah. who you are as a company and a culture. And how do you get people to do what you need them to do so you can be who you you know, who you want to be. And, you know, it turns out to be subtle and simple. I'll give you kind of um, one quick example that uh, we have. So we're, we're like relatively small, like a lot of your listeners and that, you know, the firm's maybe 180 people. Um, and as a venture capital firm, like one of the things, because we serve, we're in service of entrepreneurs, that's kind of the business. Um, you want every employee to treat entrepreneurs in that process and that struggle and that difficulty that that you've been through with utmost respect because it's a and and whatever whether they're doing well or poorly you at least have to appreciate how hard it is um, and we really wanted that in the culture but that's a real challenge in venture capital because the behavioral dynamic that drives the way people actually behave is we have money you want money you have to come to us to get the money 
and then we get to tell you whether you got it. And so what that does to people's psychology is it makes them, you know, think they're the big person and the entrepreneur is the little person. And so we really had to overcorrect to get people back to where we wanted them to be. And so one of the things we put in place in the culture is if you're late for a meeting with an entrepreneur, you you are fined $10 a minute. And so what that does is, okay, you had to go to the bathroom, no problem, $50. You know, <laughs> oh, you had a really important phone call you were on, no problem, $100. And people would come to me and they'd go, well, why am I paying to work here? You know, that's not fair. Like, you should be paying me. I'm working hard. I'm, you know, I have to go to the bathroom, da da da, da. And I... And that's the question that I wanted, because the question is what drives the behavior, because then I say, look, I don't think you really understand how hard it is to build a company, because if you did, you wouldn't be wasting people's time. You would plan going to the bathroom. You would plan that phone call. And I know you can do it because, like, let's imagine you were getting married today. I don't think you'd be like five minutes late to the altar because you had to go to the bathroom. I think you would have already gone to the bathroom, you know, like so. I know you can do it. And that kind of reprogram because every time you go to a meeting you you go damn why am i planning to go to the bathroom why do i have to figure this out i didn't have to do this at my last job and it's because oh i know why because it's really hard to build a company and so that kind of gets it into people's nervous system and that's these are the kind of set of techniques that you end up having to use to kind of move a culture from where it is to where you need it to be we believe that the way you get good venture capital is the best entrepreneurs want to work with you. Yeah. Um, because unlike uh, real estate investing or stock picking or any of these other kinds of things, you, everybody doesn't have access to every deal. Mm-hmm. So some firms get basically, you know, to use a sports analogy, the number one draft pick every single year. Um, and those uh, firms will tend to perform better. And so your philosophy of, in, in, in our view, your philosophy of what it means to build a company ends up being kind of the most important thing, not only for kind of having the firm that we want to have, but also for kind of returns to investors. So, um, you know, other people have different ideas, which is, you know, like we have to maximize our money. And, and what I always tell kind of young people is if you have a business idea, and everybody thinks it's a good idea, it's probably the wrong idea because it's too obvious. If you have a business idea and most people go like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, (laughs) that you're actually more likely to be on the right track. And so much about entrepreneurship is betting on yourself and betting on your ideas. And now that doesn't mean you could just like, whatever, be getting high in your dorm room and like come up with a stupid idea and like, that's a good idea. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, like, if you've done all the work, you've thought it through, you really understand the customer psychology, you understand what the competition is doing, and you've come to some conclusion that is different than what everybody else thought, that's actually the best thing you can do. Um, So, you know, you have to go with those ideas or you're not an entrepreneur. Or, you know, like, it's not a good, like, politicians would be the worst entrepreneurs in the world because they care what everybody else thinks you know and I think as an entrepreneur you really can't care about what people think because they're going on conventional wisdom they're going on very surface information what does the crowd believe and the entrepreneur has to be the contrary they have to be the ones that come up with the breakthrough the breakthrough in thinking that cracks through all that convention 
and that's when you get really the the most exciting outcomes. And the story is basically uh, Jacques Senghor is in prison for murder, um, comes into jail, and his first day out of first day in jail, uh, he's in the rec area, and a prisoner walks up to another prisoner and stabs him in the neck, and the prisoner bleeds out and dies, and the person who stabbed him throws the shank that he stabbed him with in the trash can and goes to the cafeteria and has a sandwich. And Shaka says to me when he's telling me the story, he said, so I had to ask myself, could I do that? And I said, well, what do you mean, could you do that? You were in for murder. You already did that. And he said, no, 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 Ben, you don't understand. What I did was I'm on the street. I'm doing a drug deal. I'm paranoid anyway. I've got a gun in my pocket. These guys come up. One of the guys I know, the other guy I don't know, he's not supposed to be there. He's not supposed to come out of the car. He comes out of the car. He's a threat to me. I react and I shoot him. That's what I did. This guy spent weeks fashioning a two liter bottle into a weapon and then decides, am I going to wound this guy or am I going to kill this guy? Well, I stab him in the stomach or stab him in the neck. And he decides he's going to kill him and he kills him and then throws in the trash and keeps it moving to the chow hall and has a sandwich like it's nothing. He said, I couldn't do that. But I had to ask myself, could I do that in order to survive? And so that's really the essence of new employee orientation, which is when somebody comes to work at your company, they're not going, oh, what are the values? What do these guys say? They're going, oh, that person, that person making all that money just took credit for her work, for somebody mm -hmm. else's work. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's how you get ahead here. I have to, can I do that? Because that's what you have to do to succeed in this company. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the orientation. And so, you know, I think people can see culture more easily in things that they're that aren't their culture. And you want to know, like, why is prison culture so violent? Well, like when you get oriented that way, um, that guarantees it. And why is your company a certain way? Well, what is it like when new people come on? Like, what do they learn about behaviors? Uh, that they're going to emulate and they're going to copy. And most people don't even think about that. They don't pay attention to it. They think that giving somebody a card with their corporate values is going to do anything. Um, but every employee has already been to other companies where the corporate values are just hypocrisy because there are a bunch of things that nobody follows. So, you know, kind of getting into the, those type of issues, you know, helps me describe sort of the things that, that are effective and are ineffective. Um, one of the keys to it is they have to bump into it all the time. Um, and there's a kind of variety of techniques that I go through in the book, but um, they're everything. So, you know, one thing is that we talked about before is what I call a shocking role. So, you know, I gave the example of, okay, you pay a $10 minute fine. Okay, that's a shock to most people when they have to pay that. And it kind of is something that they're confronted with all the time every day. You know, one of the things that, in you know, from the Haitian Revolution along those lines was to Toussaint outlawed kind of uh, officers having concubines. And so you married officers having concubines. And that was just a shock to people because, you know, the, the other armies, of course, are raping. And so these guys can't even cheat on their wives. What the, you know, what's going on? They need to know why that is. Um, and it really, it was a rule to set a culture of trust, that your word is important. Um, and 
so that's something that they bumped into all the time. Every time they were jealous of the kind of other soldiers having concubines, they had to go, okay, well, look, my word matters in this army. Um, and so that's something that you bump into every day. Another kind of technique that's very effective is if there's a story that's so good um, that it becomes lore in the company, then everybody knows that story and it gets into everybody's consciousness that that's how they need to behave. And probably the, you know, the greatest example of a long lasting culture is the, uh, the samurai culture of Bushido or the way of the warrior. And they were fantastic at this. And one of the, one of uh, my favorite stories is uh, the story of the Chaiken uh, Marikashi, uh, which is basically a genealogy. So in ancient Japan, the biggest status symbol was your genealogy. Uh, like basically the scroll of all your ancestors and, you know, you know, who your grandfather and great grandfather and so forth and your whole family tree. And there was a guy by the name of Lord Soma who had this amazing um, genealogy like recorded and it was on this scroll and everybody knew it. It had a name, the Chaiken Marikoshi, and everybody was so jealous of him. A samurai working for him who was a very mediocre samurai, clumsy, not very talented and so forth, but he really liked him because he was a really kind of good person and very loyal. Um, and so one day, Lord Soma's house catches fire and it is burning like, I mean, engulfed in flames, burning down. There's no way to save it. And the genealogy is in the house. And so the samurai says, um, and Lord Soma is so sad about the genealogy, and the samurai says, I'm going to go in and get it. And Lord Thomas says, you know, you're guaranteed to die. I don't want to lose you and the scroll. Like, it's gone. It's over. Don't worry about it. Before he can finish talking, the samurai's in the house. So after the house burns down, they go out to, to look for him. And sure enough, like, he's burnt to a crisp, face down. Um, but they notice there's a pool of blood around his body. And they can't figure out why he's bleeding. And so they turn him over. And there's a slit in his stomach. And they reach into the slit and inside his stomach is the genealogy. Um, he cut himself open and saved the scroll, you know, for everybody. And that, that went on to be known as the blood genealogy. And it's a story of, look, you can redeem yourself entirely by being loyal. That's how important loyalty is. And you could be mediocre your whole career, but be a legend you know, if you have loyalty to that degree. So that that kind of story sets a culture in a way that all the talk could never do, um, because who could forget a story like that or or a name like that, the blood <laughs> yeah. genealogy. A key on culture is you have to balance things because they can get out of hand if they're interpreted all one way. So, for example, um, at Slack, my friend Stuart Butterfield uh, had this cultural value, which was empathy. Um, and, you know, what he meant is you need to understand somebody else's point of view before you kind of push your own. You need to, like, be empathetic to why they think a certain way about something, which is an important thing in a company, right? Because somebody in marketing has a different view than somebody in engineering, and you need to understand what that perspective is before you start pushing your agenda. And that was what he meant. <laughs> but what they did was it became sort of weaponized in the sense that, you know, if somebody got a bad review from their manager, they would say, oh, to their manager, you're off culture because you're not being very empathetic. Mm -hmm. And so that's like such a corruption of the idea. But that happens all the time in culture. The mistake that people most often make 
in terms of kind of setting the goal too high, it, you know, does have to do with budgeting. So you say, okay, I think we can triple revenue next year. What do you all need to do that? And then what happens then is, you know, you can end up starting a contest of, you know, among your team of, okay, who's got the most ambitious spend plan because they all have this incentive to kind of build a big organization. And the thing that is dangerous with really, really fast growth, I mean, there's multiple dangers, but one of the big ones is communication breaks down. Another big one is culture, uh, where you're bringing in, if you bring in kind of more people from another culture than you have in your culture, you better be really systematic about how to integrate them in. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a different company than you had. You know, so the, the, the kind of antidote for that is you go, okay, this is how much we're going to increase spending, and then this is what I want to achieve, and you've got to get your goal within that envelope. So you don't give them one without the other. You don't ask them how much they want to spend. You tell them how much they're going to get to spend. Um, and that, that, that process just works much better because you want people to get the goal by being thinking smart, not by throwing money at the problem. And so whatever you do, you want the incentive to not be to throw money at every problem. The most difficult thing is, is I, I'm sure you know, is like product market fit. How do you get that product right for that market so it really grows? And, and entrepreneurs have done it, so they take it for granted, but there are very few people in the world who can do that. And so if you take on more than say one big new thing that requires product market fit. Like you can do a large number of things that add to your current product market fit. But if you're trying to go for a new product market fit, you probably, there, there may be one or two people in the entire company who can do that. And even at like a place like Google or Facebook, there's still only maybe a dozen people who can do that. Um, so it's a very, like that innovation capability is uh, always going to be scarce. And so I went kind of go, okay, we're going to do five things like the thing we just did. Um, I think that's very dangerous. But if you say, okay, we're going to take the thing we just did and we're going to make it 10 times bigger, that's like a more reasonable thing to do in terms of scale. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash hosting. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker 
has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Uh, there are two mentalities out there that scare me. Rachel, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> Scarcity mentality scares me because what that means is, is that people have this mindset that there's not enough to go around. So if someone else is doing well, they're taking away from my opportunity. That's not true. You know, if you look at this, we have billions of people on the planet. We've got people we can serve. We just have to focus. So I don't like the scarcity mentality. There's a lot out there for everybody. People just need to get to work. The other one is victim mentality. Now, this one is the most poisonous. Victim mentality is where you're thinking someone else is standing in my way or it's someone else's. I'm blaming someone else that I didn't do X, Y or Z. And I don't that mentality scares me because it prevents us from getting better. Because if you're saying the reason I haven't done anything yet or I've not gotten better is because someone is holding me back or someone else is standing in my way, then you'll be limited in what you're willing to try and how hard you keep pushing. Learn to be an appreciator. Like I'm excited for people that are doing well and someone else doing well doesn't mean that I can't. So I'm naturally excited for people that are winning, uh, that are doing things, that are working hard, that have paid a price and sacrifice and are winning. So I think have an attitude of being an appreciator. Uh, Don't let someone else's success cause you to look at inwardly in what you're not doing. Um, I, I think what we have to do is understand we all have different start points. Like when I did the research, we did the largest research ever on millionaires. We talked to over 10,000 of them across the nation. And before I was, as I was writing my book, uh, Everyday Millionaires, how ordinary people built extraordinary wealth and how you can too. I think number one, being an appreciator, it helps us to understand what's possible. And we all have different start points. Some of us have had more advantages than others. Others have had some disadvantages more than others, but we all are running the same race, right? We all get to run this race and to be able to give that effort. And so being an appreciator of people that are doing well, but also being an understander, understanding that regardless of where you come from, regardless of where you were born or where you went to school, you have an opportunity to win. You have an opportunity to put yourself on the path and do well. And that's what I found as I did this research. These everyday millionaires, these were people that came from less than nothing. 
Some of them were homeless at some point in time, but they got consistent and got focused and were willing to sacrifice. So I think if we're an appreciator for people, we're an understander that we can do better, we've got opportunities, we can change the game starting today. I think it's important that you are talking about this, that you're talking about the criticism and the hate that you got. I get it as well. Uh, but here's what I want your, your viewers and your listeners to understand. If you're doing something that stands for something, you're gonna get some hate, mm -hmm. right? If you're pushing against the norm and you're trying to encourage people, uh, there's a percentage of society that needs to be incarcerated, okay? They're crazy. <laughs> I firmly believe that I say it out loud. But I want, I want you to know, if you're doing something that stands for something, you're gonna get some pushback. Here's what you can't do. And I'm gonna talk about myself, Rachel. Yep. Because I remember my first book came out, Retire Inspired. 2016, I was pumped up. I was excited. The first Amazon reviews kind of come out, and the, I've got 200 of them that are glowing. Yeah. Amazing investments. But guess what? <laughs> That's not the I one you the know. One. <laughs> I had the one. He was John A417. I remember this. Okay. <laughs> oh I shouldn't. God. But he said my book wasn't worthy of toilet reading. No. Okay. Oh, man. I, I looked at the screen. I started to call my buddy that works in the FBI to yes, help me find this yes, man. Yes, yes. How dare he say this about me? But I realized, see, that's our human nature. You can have 200 positive things, but we naturally will glow, go toward that one negative. Yep. And we can't do that. We can't do that. Nowhere in math does 200 ever get outweighed by one. Yeah. And what I want to remind your viewers and your listeners about is, yes, you're going to have people that are jealous. You're going to have people that are drinking haterade. That's the drink for haters. You're going to have people that are against you and, and have an issue. But I want you to stay so focused on the kind. I want you to stay focused on the people you've encouraged. That's why I was talking when I was at your event, which was awesome, by the way. Thank you. Um, talking about the importance of writing thank you notes. Mm -hmm. Like thank you notes show your gratitude and people go back and read those. Yeah. And so I want us to expect, expect people to be crazy, small percent, mm -hmm. expect some people to be jealous, expect some people to hate, that's okay, those are all small percentages. But I want you to expect to make an impact by caring for people that need to hear the message and stay pushing forward. Don't ever forget your goal and mission is to impact people and do a positive thing. We're going to have to walk through negatives mm -hmm. to continue to do our positives. How do you all find such motivated people? How do you motivate your team? And I tell them, no, no, you, you've got this wrong. We hire motivated people. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's not my job to keep them motivated. My job is to keep my people moving forward toward the goal. But you, when you find motivated people, it's awesome because they come to work ready to roll. They come to work with their mind clear, understanding what it is you're trying to do. And what it does is it creates a culture of people that have a self-employed mentality. This is one of the things that I want to encourage your business owners out there to create. A self-employed mentality means that people understand that they they control their fate. They are they are plugged in and they are a part of this business and the future of the business relies on their effort and their focus. And when you do that, when you listen to your team members and you give them an opportunity to get direct feedback and you're honest, you know, because leaders most of the time we we're not clear on our expectations. Like we have it in our heads of what we want people to do, but if we don't ever verbalize it, you're actually doing your team member a disservice. And so someone needs to know, hey, I'm expecting you to achieve this, this, and this. 
And this is what we need to happen together as a team. What can I do as a leader to help you do that? How can I help you hit that mark? And so the the mindset of the leader is I need to empower people by delegating to them, not only the authority, but the responsibility to make things happen. But then as the leader, we need to make sure we're supporting people and giving them the tools they need to make that happen. I think my definition of servant leadership is to give others what they need to achieve what they were designed to be. Mm. And I, I say that in as far as I'm wanting to make sure that I'm I'm helping people Right, and especially the people on the team. I, I there, it's it's important. Um, just earlier, uh, you know, a lady that's on my team was came up to me and she's talking to me about a puppy she's getting. Right, she's about to get a puppy. This puppy has nothing to do with our job. This has nothing to do with what we're doing day in and day out. You know what it has to do with relationship. Yeah, and when you're to people, you want to know the great things that are going on, the good things, but you also need to know the tough things. And I think the leader that has the most connections, Rachel, to be honest, the leader with the most connections with their team wins. They win because that means the team members trust you enough to talk about things and you want to be available to them to be able to be connected as well. And so it's really this different mind shift. I think most people see leadership as I want to be the power person. I'm the run that's in charge. I'm the power woman in charge or the power guy in charge. And reality is, is we need to get rid of that. We need to kind of flip that. See, old school corporate mentality is everything's about the person at the top. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of showing you the triangle, everything, yes, everything. Yeah. Literally, we did this at your event where we flipped that, where it's about the person at the top making it about everyone else. Mm-hmm. And that takes work because you've got to block ego as a leader. you got to block, you know, your pride and all those things. You've got to be committed to helping your team get better. And that's so you're part coach, part cheerleader, but you're also part pusher, meaning I'm wanting to make sure I'm pushing people to grow forward day in and day out. Well, I think it's one of those, we've all kind of messed up at that at some point, right? Because we've all had a leader or a boss, you know, that you said, okay, I don't ever want to be like that person, right? I want to care for my people. And so we've all made the mistake of maybe caring so much that we still didn't communicate. And I think it's the communication factor, uh, meaning, you know, I've got people here that I hang out with and, and, and do things with, and we're, we're friends, but we still know there's a business relationship here. Yeah. And so I think it's a matter of us internally setting the ground rules. For example, you know, when you're hanging out, you know, great, we're hanging out, but at work, you want people to understand, I got to put on my, my, my leader hat. Yeah. I've got to put on the CEO hat. And when I'm wearing that CEO hat, you need to understand we're not being buddies. I'm being CEO. And if you have mature people working with you that have the ability to not also to put on their leader hat or their worker hat or whatever, then I think it's a whole lot easier for everybody to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. But regardless, I would rather the leader err on the side of being absolutely clear. Like, I feel like it's to be unclear is unkind as a leader. Yes. I'll say it again. To be unclear is unkind as a leader. So what we have to do is make sure we're telling people the expectations. Like, I'm amazed how people are worried about conflict. Like, leaders will avoid it. Like, if someone's showing up late, which is one of my pet peeves, right? If you don't talk about it, but you walk around mad about it, Mm -hmm. and you have silent anger, see, silent anger is dangerous for leaders. Oh, it'll eat away at trust and it'll eat away at loyalty because you're going to retaliate at that person in some way at some point. 
So as opposed to walking around holding it in and then going home and being mad at your spouse or mad at your kid because you didn't tell this person at work what they need to fix, let's go the other route. You don't have to, listen, conflict can get dealt with without everybody getting mad, right? If someone's late, that's what you do. You bring them in, you sit down, you say, hey, John, you're doing a great job. I love the work you're doing, but you're showing up late and that needs to stop. Because when you show up late, you're saying you don't respect the team and you don't respect me. So I like you. I like your performance. I want you to stay. But I want this late mindset, this this lazy mindset or late thing, that has to go. And I'm being real clear. I want the person. I like the person. This behavior needs to go. Yeah. And I think if we more direct and just that communication and letting people know you get a chance to be clear. You get a chance to be on the same page and John gets a chance to change or not change the behavior, but moving forward, he knows showing up late isn't an option. And so after the second time of talking about it, I'm going to tell John, John, we have talked about this a couple of times. You know, I like you. I like your performance, but this is the last conversation I'm going to have with you about being late. Hey, this is it. And so I need you to know this so you can be aware and you can make some changes. See, John comes out of that conversation knowing clearly, right, the deal. I think when you don't do that with people and you hold the grudge or you, you end up being retaliating in some other way, it's not being fair. So I want leaders to be more direct. Notice I didn't get all riled up talking to John. I was just clear and direct. Well, this is essentially, I would call that sanction and competence. Um, when you're allowing someone else to hang around who's not ringing the bell of excellence or isn't giving the effort that everyone else is, that has to be addressed frequently and often. Uh, and meaning, you know, having the conversation. More importantly, I want to make sure as a leader that I'm not failing that person. Meaning, am I giving them the tools, the guidance, the mentoring that they need to raise their performance? And am I also leaning in on and pressing in on, on the behavior or the performance that's not where it needs to be? So it needs to be talked about and discussed, and there needs to be some guidance around this individual. Don't just leave them off on their own to just kind of whittle away or just hang out. See, I'm going to address that, and I want to make sure that we're correcting it. I think the reality is is this. What you want to do is always the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if someone's not performing well, we need to figure out what that is. And I call it, it's one of two things. They're either unable or unwilling, right? Now, the unable means that they don't have the skill set or we need to polish or give them something so they can get better. Someone that's unwilling means now now that that's an effort thing. They're not giving the effort. So when it's time to address these issues, I'm going to address it and we're going to talk about it and I'm not going to let it slide. You know, there are leaders out there. We do what's called a 90-day plan. Mm -hmm. If someone's not performing well, they're on a 90-day plan. We don't give it to them on one day and check in on day 90. No, 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 no. We're giving them that on one on day one, but we're also following up on day three, day five. We're leaning in on it because if someone's unwilling, we didn't need to, to take 90 days for us to figure that out. And I've always viewed it as this. If someone's not ringing the bell of excellence uh, here or anywhere else, they need to go somewhere else where they can. Yes. And when you yes. there, they may not have the courage to leave. So we may have to help people find that courage. And I'm going to tell you, I've heard from people that have ended up leaving, whether it was working with me or someone else, and they went and found what they were meant to do. 
or something they were better suited to do, and they're doing well. So I think it's all a matter in us as leaders of being clear, being direct, but also being kind. And when you do that, you give people an opportunity to save face. You also have an opportunity to be a generous leader because when you let them go, you did it the right way. And you're not talking about them behind their back and all this. Any conversation is direct with them and they're able to move forward and move on with their life. I I think it's also as a leader being connected enough with people. uh, And really, it starts on the front end, Rachel. It starts with hiring the right caliber of people, Mm -hmm. right? And so many leaders out there will get in a rush and we look to hire a body. And the next thing you know is, guess what? You got a body just hanging out, taking a paycheck and not really performing. Yes. So I think it starts front end. The other side of it is, is I need to make sure that I'm clear in my expectations, Uh, meaning we call them KRAs, key results areas. These are the areas people have to focus on in their job and they know exactly how they're going to be gauged and judged on performance. So again, goes back to clearly defined expectations. But you're going to have times where you have someone that either, A, the company morphs or the position becomes more than what this person is able to do. I always want to think, what can we do to help this person step it up uh, to do it? Is it uh, education? Is it training? Is it mentoring? What is it? But once you do that, if you've done those things, then this person, there's not another seat on the bus for them. Um, or there's not another place and, and you've kind of moved on or they've regressed, whatever it is. I want to be able to go directly into that situation, have the conversations frequently and often. So this person is able to understand, hey, this is the expectation. This is what you need to do. This is what not is not being done. Something's going to have to change. Mm-hmm. Either your performance is going to have to raise up or you may need to move on to something else. The season here may be done. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I would just, as a leader, encourage people to be open, honest, and direct with people, but give them a chance to turn it around. Give them a chance to step it up. And if you, if you do that, then you've treated them like you'd want to be treated. What I don't like are the surprise attacks, right? Yeah. When leaders don't tell someone, and now all of a sudden, within a week, they're totally frustrated with them. Well, that's your fault as a leader, because you were frustrated two months ago. You just didn't verbalize it. So let's be open and honest with people and let them know so they can try to turn it around. I I like the fact that you have that mentality. I like the fact that you are taking the responsibility, you're taking the blame, uh, and you're letting your team know that. You see, when you do that, what you're saying is, is that we're in this together. Mm -hmm. And that's true what people want. People want to belong. You know, people have three needs. They want to be appreciated, uh, they want to be recognized, and they want to belong. And so I think you doing that sends a message to the team that, hey, we're in this together. I'm going to tell you, I've spent a lot of time out in corporate America. There's a name for a leader that takes all the credit, right? (laughs) There's a name for a leader that takes all the the good things and and they take all the credit. It's called a thief, Mm. right? You're stealing away from an opportunity to grow your team and acknowledge your team because you're worried about you getting all the attention. That's, That's ridiculous. As a servant leader, you want to be the opposite. You want to give the credit to your team, uh, praise them, uh, and you kind of be in behind the scenes even if you're out front. And I think that communicates that loyalty side. You know, every leader wants loyalty. I don't care what you can they, – they don't know how to mention it all the time, but every leader wants people that are going to be committed to the mission of the business and to have their back. Every leader wants that. Well, guess what? The best way to get that is to be that. You to have people, you to be able to support people and look out for them. Excuse me. 
and letting them know that they matter to you and and just doing those things day in and day out. And so I like you you what you're doing is you're creating an environment of people that have this we mentality. Mm-hmm. And that thing is huge because they'll go into battle for you. They'll follow you anywhere. Why? Because you've been trustworthy Absolutely. and then you're worthy of trust and they're going to give it in return. I don't want to let people down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got people that are counting on me or people that maybe need me to help them get to where they need to be. Um, I've, I've got this mindset. I've got three boys uh, and my, my leadership legacy is one day someone bumps into those boys and they say, I knew your dad. Or I worked with him or I heard him speak and that man pushed me and encouraged me. Um, I think if my boys were to hear that about me, that would just make my heart full. That meant that I was being a coach, that I'm pushing and I'm trying to help as many people as I can with the time I have on this earth. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. I never really considered myself a leader. How do you know if you are one? What do you think about that? Well, that's a great question. I've never really thought about that. I, I suppose at the most literal, if people follow you, then you're a leader. Even if you're a mom and your kids are following you and, and doing what you say, you're a leader. I think if your friends are asking you for advice, you're a leader. I think everybody uh, has elements of leadership within them. I think most women, and I hope it's changing, but I think especially for me growing up, I mean, nobody ever told you you were a leader as a woman. Like, in fact, the opposite, right? You were not expected to be a leader. I remember many times trying to lead and being told, hey, better not do that anymore, right? So I I do think that everybody does have it inside of them. And for me, I think it was um, more, I was motivated to actually achieve. For me, I overcame, I had, I had so many confidence issues, to be honest with you, that I overcame just because I kept trying to achieve and kept trying to achieve. And it, it just kind of led me to a place where I achieved <laughs> because I just kept, <laughs> I kept trying. Certainly over the past few years, especially, I've had this conversation with myself over and over again, looking back, I think, you know, what could I have done differently? What should I have done differently? I wish I would have stood up for other women more than I did maybe early in my career. I, I just think that it has been a different road for women than it's for men. Certainly in my industries, I think in any industry, and I do think it's changing, but I still think it's that way. I think my humor was always something that I used to help people uh, get the message, but without being so you know poignant about it or direct. Um, I remember uh, making a joke once in a in an executive meeting that it felt like a Robert Palmer video. And I remember, (laughs) I remember the only other woman in the room coming to me afterwards and saying, that was awesome. Everybody got your point, but they were laughing instead of feeling badly about it, but you made your point. So I do think that if you think about communicating in a way that, that you get your point across, but you don't have to be mean about it. You can be constructive and humorous and really make the point. 
So one thing, one trick I learned early on was to pose your thought as a question because it's easier on you and you you'd probably have to have a little bit less confidence to do it. So instead of like making a point about something, you could say, have you ever thought of this? Or I wonder if we did it this way. And I'm not suggesting that that's the right thing, but I do think it's easier to get your voice in that way. And I will tell you that, again, I go back to humor. I think humor is like your seek can be your secret weapon because I cannot tell you how many times still I sit around a table and I'll say something and then a man around the table will say the exact same thing. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But now instead of being quiet about it, I go to the person next to me. Did you just hear that? Didn't I just say that a few minutes ago? Yeah. I have the confidence now. I don't care anymore. I'll say that just to make a point. I think the other thing too is pay attention. Like um, some leaders that you're, if you're in a meeting, some leaders actually want everybody to speak up. And I think again, men are better at this traditionally than women are. So they they do value volume. <laughs> they value input. Yeah. They value volume. Even if you don't have much to say, I think if you're silent in a meeting with a leader like that, you're going to be noticed because you're not participating. So I think noticing if that's the kind of leader you're with, make sure to say something. I know maybe half a poker chip use, but, but I think other leaders will value exactly that, you know, being really good, choosing your words carefully, using that poker chip well. But I do think it, you have to pay attention to the circumstances that you're in in order to make sure that you're uh, viewed in the right way by that leader. You know, one of the mistakes that I see people make the most is they say, you know, they, they say basically, I, hey, I need a job. I can do anything. I can do anything. And I always say, that's the worst thing to do. It's the worst thing to put on your bio. Make sure to your point, exactly, that people know exactly what you are. Are you a dog? Are you a cat? Are you a coyote? Are you a bear? Because don't make people imagine and use their brain to figure out what you are. You figure it out for them. And that will definitely do you a lot more than being a generalist at anything. You know, I tell uh, a lot of the women that I mentor to go and ask the people around you, your family, your friends, your colleagues, ask them to give three attributes that describe you, three adjectives, three attributes. And then you start to hear that from people and you start to, a, a picture of kind of your unique you evolves. Because I, I do think a lot of people don't even know what makes them special. So I never feel like I accomplish all the things I need to get done. So right. let's just start that one there. straight right off the bat. <laughs> For me, I, you know, morning is, I'm a morning person and morning is my very favorite time. And if I don't get my time to like, I wake up early, I wake up at like three 45, four in the morning by choice. Like, I just love that time of day. I have my, you know, apple cider vinegar and Manuka honey. Like this is my ritual. Yes. So I have a ritual. Yes. And then I make my list and that list is like, I feel good when I cross stuff off that list. I never get through the list. So there's probably some bad psychology to that. But just organizing myself and having rituals, I think in the beginning of the day sets it off right because you don't know what's going to happen. Well, you actually do. You know that your day is going to go bonkers at some point, right? You're going to get <laughs> off track. And so just kind of grounding yourself in the morning for me, that's the most important thing. Gosh, I think setting boundaries is one of the hardest things to do. And I think going back to what you just said, like you really, I think if you go back to, is this going to achieve my top three? Let's go with your top three. Is this going to contribute to my top three? And if it isn't, then I think you say no nicely. And if it is, then okay, move it along. 
I think people also have a hard time saying no to outside of work, right? Out, it's the same problem. Yes. And I see it happen with women all the time. And I think many people feel like they're a bad person if they say no. And I think, again, you can say no in a good way. You can offer alternatives. There's lots of ways to help without taking it all on yourself. Yeah. And I think you, you need to listen to your inner like emotions on this stuff because you can, if you're feeling resentful, then you're saying yes too much. Yep. If you're angry, you're saying yes too much. So you need to listen to your emotions along these lines and that can be really helpful to you. Yeah. You know, I'm not really good at that. I have to say, I, I mean, like your I, honesty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not. And I do, you know, I'm the mom that chose work over going to the, to the, thing, whatever it was at school. You know, mm -hmm. I never handed out cupcakes. I never, you know, dropped my kids off at the bus. That just wasn't me, but my kids know I love them. And I, you know, <laughs> I've said this before, I read this in a, literally a reader's digest article, like a hundred million years ago that said the most important thing for kids to know is that you love them. Not that you're doing everything you can with them, or, you know, certainly I have quality time with my kids, but I am I am not like sitting down and doing crafts and all that. And I had to let go of that guilt a long time ago. And it still gets me sometimes, but my kids know I love them. I've got three boys who are raised by a strong woman. And I feel like they're going to know when they go out into the world that you don't mess with women. I also, you know, I think that people, you know, they look at you, they look at people like me who have achieved a certain amount. And I think they think that everything's easy for them. Oh, gosh. And but, but right? right. I know it's funny, but, but I do think that, and I can't tell you, you know, one, once I was speaking to a group of women and when I told the truth about, they were like, Oh, I did this photo shoot and they thought it was so glamorous. And I said, yep. But when I left in the morning at that time, my five-year-old was like hanging on my leg going, don't go mommy, don't go. I was crying. I had to go to New York, blah, blah. And I remember so many women going, I didn't realize that you had to go through that too. Yep. And I, it's just these little things, but I, I think when you let other women know, like, this is my life too, right? It's messy. Right. Like it's not all curated for me, right? I buy bags of target salad, right? And put them in a bowl and eat that for lunch. Yes. Like the world, yep. it is messy yep. for me too. And it's okay to be messy because that's life. Absolutely. So I, I think that's a really important message for women. Like it isn't all, you know, roses and rainbows. Like you just like trudge through, you get, you get through. <laughs> some days are great and some days are hard. So I give four or five keynotes a week. I'm on probably 10 podcasts a week. I've always asked the same question, which is kind of odd, which is uh, are leaders made or are they born? I don't believe leaders are born. I think people are born and maybe artists are born. I don't know, I'm not an artist in terms of classic art. I, I think leadership is a developed skill. Mm -hmm. I do think that, that anybody could become a great leader if they're willing to move outside their natural comfort zone enough. Let me rewind a little bit. I think that culture is every organization's most valuable asset. That will be yours, it won't be her, it won't be your husband, it won't be your books or your website, it'll be your culture inside this company. And that's a bit of a buzzword right now, but it is absolutely true. 30 years in this organization, if I have any expertise, it's around how do you build a great culture. This adage that people are an organization's most valuable asset, you've heard that? Totally not true. It's bunk. You are not this company's most valuable asset. How you and you get along together, that is what makes this company rock. If you two can forgive each other, 
because she talks too much and you come to work too late. You get the point, right? If you can forgive each other, if you can pre-forgive each other, if you can trust each other, if you can understand what are her strengths and what are her weaknesses, and you can build complement, that is this organization's most valuable asset. That is your killer app. How the people work at this company, that's what will make you scale. So, so what is the role of leadership? Leaders create culture. Leaders are the linchpin in any organization with culture because you create culture in every interaction, every email, every text, every time you put somebody in BCC, don't use BCC. There's no reason for that, because then you create a suspicious culture. But leaders create culture in every interaction. Every time you walk from one building to the next or one cubicle and you're on your phone versus saying hi to someone, how's it going, you're creating or destroying culture. So you have to be very deliberate around the kind of culture you want. All your actions, behaviors, everything you say, every interaction, you're building culture. People don't quit their jobs. They quit their boss. That's so good. That's in the book. That's not original so to me. Good. But more importantly, they also quit their culture. Because you can change bosses out, right? You can move someone around, but if your culture is one where everybody's gossiping and backbiting, you don't trust each other, that's your culture. Mm -hmm. If your culture is you pre-forgive, you don't confess others' sins, you sit in the cubicle and say, can I tell you, I'm feeling there's some awkwardness between us, something's going on, perhaps something I said, I'm totally willing to, to cop to it, but I'm not quite sure what's going on, it's kind of thick in here. Can we just have, that? that's culture. Mm -hmm. And you gotta work on it because your culture can devolve to the lowest level or you can go to the highest level. So to your point, leadership can be learned. But I don't, again, think everybody should be a leader of people. Here's what being a leader of people is like. Let's say you report to me. Yeah. Like that's gonna happen. <laughs> I'm gonna say, Rachel, I called you into my office today because I wanna have a high courage conversation with you. What's said in here stays in here. And I want you to know my intent is to help you fulfill a great career here at the Hollis Company. And there are some behaviors that I'm seeing you exist with the team members that are really causing you some problems. And if they don't correct, it's going to end up in you leaving the organization. I find that when we're, you get the point, right? Like four times a day. It might even be so far as, John, I've called you in my office today because like me, I've noticed that you might be breaking through your deodorant. It's hot in Texas in the summertime, and our body, I know, you're mortified. You get the point, right? And like me, sometimes I gotta switch up my deodorant because I break through it. I've noticed it a bit about you before anybody else does. I really have your best interest in mind. That's leadership. And any other conversation about your productivity, your abundance, your tardiness, your ability to collaborate, your ability to take credit, your ability to walk in and not say, my bad. Do not say that in front of me. Don't let it come out of your mouth. Walk in and say, we went to the concert last night. I had four beers. Okay, I had six beers. I took an Uber home. I overslept and I was late on my report and I own it and I am sorry and it will never happen again. 100% my responsibility. Can I have a second chance? That's the kind of conversations that leaders are having. So all those can be learned. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day though, that's easy for perhaps someone like me who's been doing it for 25 years. I do that all day long. It doesn't even phase me. But for some people, that's like a horrifying conversation to have any of those. And it might keep you up at night for four or five hours while your stomach is churning. If that's the case, leadership may not be the right role for you because the biggest gift you can give someone on your team is to help them see their blind spots. We all have them. If I'm going too long, stop me. No, this is we, like my dream. We aren't as punctual. We're not as smart. We're not as creative. We're not as self-aware. Our breath doesn't smell as good. My wife says I'm not as funny as I think I am. But everybody's got blind spots. And the biggest gift you can give someone as a leader is to have the courage to sit them down and talk about them in private, 
not discuss them, perhaps role play them with Rachel or her husband, you get the point, right? That's the biggest gift you can give someone mm -hmm. because what happens is most people have pansy leaders. Well intended, but don't summon the courage to sit down and say, we need to have a conversation. I've seen this behavior four or five times in meetings. I don't know why, but you're really struggling with ever letting somebody else take the credit. Mm. Or you're just, everything's on your own hard drive. You've got to put the files in the server so everybody can access them because you're not the only talented person in this organization. You've got to trust other people. It's those kind of conversations that you've got to have. The problem is most leaders don't do that. Yeah. They sit down and they say, how am I doing? Oh, everything is great. I'm loving it. It's great. It's great. <laughs> and then it's time for Rachel to call you in and say, I've got a problem with Tim. What's going on over there? And then you wait three or four more months. It builds up. And then you do one of two things. You either lower the boom on Tim. And he never knew and you devastate him. Or you beat him on the bush. And you obfuscate. And, and then Tim walks out thinking that everything's okay. So great leaders have a balance of high courage, but also high consideration, right? They have this diplomacy. I don't have that. I'll talk about anything with anybody. The biggest gift you can give your people is to sit down in a respectful way, have a straightforward conversation, and then lockbox. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it at lunch with the other managers. Respect that person's, yeah. you know, uh, brand. The biggest cancer in every organization, and I speak four or five times around the world every week, is gossip. It is the biggest cancer in every Say organization. Say it again for the people in the back. Yeah. Are they the big gossipers in the back? No, no, no. no. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Kevin is terrible. Always talking trash. Uh, but this, this is profound, and not because I'm saying it, because it is true. Being loyal to the absent, the biggest cultural cancer is gossip. And it kind of always feels well-intended, but it's not. It's just you being petty. You talk a bit about it in your book, right? Mm -hmm. And Dr. Covey calls it being loyal to the absent. And the standard is that you will never say something about someone when they are in your absence differently than if they were present. Meaning, from this point forward, make your culture here be when someone is not at lunch or not in the meeting or not at the coffee bar or across the street, you don't speak about them any differently than if they were sitting right in front of you. It will change your standard at 11 o'clock today. It's called being loyal to the absent. Because if you want to build trust with those who are present, you are loyal to those who are absent. So my, my best leadership advice to you is if you want to build trustworthy relationships. In fact, raise your hand if you're trustworthy. No, put them down. <laughs> who decides if you're trustworthy? Other people. The other person. Yeah, right. that's good. You, you build trust with others through your behavior. You earn the right to be called trustworthy because other people trust you based on your encounters. And if you want to build trust with someone and you're in a conversation and it's getting catty or gossipy and someone tries to draw you in, you say, you know, I'm sure it isn't your intention, but I'll bet you that would hurt Rachel's feelings if she heard that. So my advice to you is go tell Rachel that directly. And if I had that same experience, I'll do the same. Because you can raise the bar without shaming somebody mm -hmm. or, or, or rushing to the first row in church. Are any of those people, right? you kind of claim the first row so you're the holier <laughs> person than that? Yeah, a little bit me. There's a lot of first row ch church rushers, are there yeah. not? Yeah. And culturally as well too. Don't do that. Dr. Covey's oldest son, Stephen M. R. Covey, wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. Oh, 
that is that's that it. is y'all's. That's okay, it. Okay, that's right. I look at that. Look at the genius that's coming that out. One. I mean, this okay, is good. humility right yeah. here, right? Yeah. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> he wrote this book called The Speed of Trust. It sold two million copies. It's phenomenal. I highly recommend it. I'd even be happy to come back sometime and teach you the content. He identifies 13 behaviors that are common to all high trust leaders. And in fact, of these 30 management practices, half of them come from his book with his permission. And he talks about how in every organization there is either a trust tax or a trust dividend. And trust is your currency. And you can literally have business at the speed of trust. And you can tell that when some of you here can kind of have telepathic business conversations with colleagues. You kind of like, you know their position, you know how they're going to feel, positive or negative. Who here has any kind of telepathic relationships here? You know, you can kind of just like feel. It feels great, doesn't it? And you can do it through email, you can do it through text, but you usually don't because you're willing to walk over to their, their office or their cube and have a conversation. And there's some people who you've either broken trust with, they violated your trust, you don't trust them because of some interaction, so you tend to email them. Or you have their assistant call your assistant, you're not big enough for that yet. Or you have some other mode of transportation, you kind of avoid it. Some of you have those here as well. Welcome to being human. But your culture here can be one of extraordinary high trust because you don't gossip, you don't backbite, you use straight talk, you have high courage conversations, you listen well. I'd love to talk about how important listening is to understand that you pre-forgive people. I love that concept. That it's beyond just forgiveness. That you pre-forgive people. People are going to say things that are rude. People are going to say things that may have one meeting or they're rooted in a paradigm they have from some other job they have. Not everybody is a sociopath. Not everybody is a narcissist. No one wakes up out of bed saying, thinking they're going to ruin your day. People say things that are sometimes accidental. Pre-forgive people. Doesn't mean you license bad behavior. But it means you give people kind of the benefit of the doubt. You assume good intent. Dr. Covey's book, The Seven Habits, Habit 5 is seek first to understand, then to be understood. Says easy, does hard, right? I think as leaders, as general people, we're, we spent most of our career being taught how to communicate. You, right? I mean, you know how to clarify your message, your vision, your values. These are the goals, speak from stage, master PowerPoint, keynote, microphone, your hand gestures, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Since birth, we're kind of taught how to master communication skills. Very few of us, if ever, have had a formal class on how to listen. Speaking is quite selfish. Listening is quite selfless. And it's pretty counterintuitive because we've been so indoctrinated to just constantly be talking and clarifying and clarifying. Rachel knows her values, she knows her mission, she knows her business goals. Half of you know them. And she has to keep talking about them over and over again because everybody's busy. And so she's also enculturated to be speaking and communicating and persuading and influencing. In fact, you're probably in the persuasion and influence mode at home and at work 95% of the time. That seems right, but great leaders are great listeners because you cannot show empathy, which is a leadership competency, if you're talking. And here's some great practice tips. The reason we're always talking is because we're usually on our own agenda, on our own timeline. Does that make sense? Your own field of experience. I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking, I wish you just would hurry up because um, if I was a girl, I dated him. I know how to solve that. 
or I had that same business, or you get the, I've already been there in life. If you would just stop talking, I can solve your problem. I'm on my timeline, I'm on my agenda, not yours. You with me? And it's often why we interrupt so, so much. I'll talk about that in a second. So here's what usually happens. I want you to tell me, we're gonna role play, that your dog died. Don't add any more narrative, just tell me your dog died. My dog died. Oh my gosh, was there blood everywhere? Was it hit by a car? Was it horrible? Was it really upsetting? Did you actually hold it in your hands? What happened? <laughs> Say it again. My dog died. Well, thank the Lord, because that underwater dog therapy you and your husband were paying for every month, it was breaking you, it was about time. What a relief. This sounds macabre, but it's not that far-fetched. Say it again. My dog died. Whatever you do, do not take it to that vet down on Central and Fourth because they don't finish the job in the crematorium and they get bones and fur back and all that. I've seen it. It's really a bad thing. <laughs> Say it again. My dog died. I'm sorry. Was it on my agenda? I don't know if she's happy or sad. The dog could have had rabies. The dog could have bitten her son. The dog be, could be incontinent and, and you know, destroying her sheep carpet. You know, I have no idea. All my responses were on my own narrative, were they not? What I think she should do, how I think she should behave. I have no idea. So then, and the problem is as leaders, as people, we've all become really good at asking questions, right? Peel the onion, get to the root cause. And that's great in some meetings when you're managing a P&L or you've got a deadline. Asking great questions can be a really good leadership tool. It also can be a horrifyingly selfish interpersonal tool because you're usually on your own narrative. In fact, when someone passes away, what's the first question most of us ask or want to find out? How did they die? That's exactly right. It doesn't matter. It, it matters to you. It doesn't matter to them unless they tell you. People will tell you what they need you to know. You will ask what you want to know. And I think that is a profound not just leadership skill, but interpersonal skill. Move off of your own agenda. Move off of your own timeline and be selfish and really get into what the other person is feeling and thinking. I want to do one more. I think one of the reasons why we're so poor listeners is that we interrupt a lot. Who here is an interrupter? Thank you for raising your hands. I usually get like one or two hands out of a thousand people. I'm seriously, you're the worst self-awareness. Nicely done. I'll bet all of you have a propensity to interrupt. Uh, if you're my age, which none of you are, uh, there was a very famous linguistics professor, Deborah Tannen, at Georgetown University. She wrote a bunch of books back in the 70s and 80s. They were massive New York Times hits. She wrote one called, I think, I just, You Just Don't Understand. Yeah. It's a phenomenal book. I ended up book. getting it because you? you said she Did was you? one of your favorites. Yes. Yeah. yeah, this woman is very smart. She's, I think, the world's most foremost linguistics um, expert, Dr. Deborah Tannen, T-A-N-N-E-N. And she, I interviewed her once, and she shared with me the reason most people interrupt is because we all have a subconscious sense for how long we think the other person should be speaking. I think you should be speaking for 48 seconds. You think she should be speaking for 49 seconds. You think she should stop talking because she talks all the time. But in our, I'm kidding. But in our own subconscious, each of us has a sense for how we think the other person should be talking. And subconsciously, when that alarm goes off, we interrupt because we're over it. And we want to solve their problem for them. We want to build, bring our experience to it. And at this conscious level, it's actually quite generous. Because you do want to help them solve their problem. Do you want your husband to solve most of your problems when you're at home complaining? No. No. You want love. 
You don't want judgment. You want some empathy. You want him to solve it for you. You just want to talk about it and probably just love you and listen. Mm -hmm. Everyone is the same. The greatest human need is to be understood. So if you want to stop your subconscious impulsive need to constantly interrupt, it comes from a good place. Here's the tip. You ready? Don't. <laughs> and here's how you do it. You gently take your upper lip and you close it and touch your lower lip and you count to seven. Not like. And Deborah Tannen says it's within that seven to ten seconds that the likelihood is the other person will either finally land their point, finish it off, or disclose something especially meaningful or important is like astronomically likely. If you can just resist the urge to interrupt them, they'll tell you what you need to know. I think it's a great tip. Practice it today. Don't, 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 you know, you'll, you know, you'll laugh. At the next meeting, you'll be seeing each other kind of like closing your lips, but you'll, you'll have an immediate exponential impact on your ability to become more empathic. And I'm gonna finish this off right now. While you're closing your lips and you can't talk, well, you can't form a word if your, if your lips are closed, you'll be automatically gravitationally pulled back into their point. Your mind won't be wandering on your project or your email or my cufflinks or any of that kind of stuff. You'll be back onto them. It takes some effort, doesn't it? It takes some effort to eliminate all the distractions and kind of get into what they're feeling, what they're saying. Because people aren't crazy. People just have mindsets that are deeply enculturated since birth, and your parents, your ministers, your principal, your teacher. And so people believe things for a reason. Like I wrote a whole chapter about that, right? Yeah. That your paradigms shape your belief system more than you can ever imagine. This idea of carry your own weather comes from never giving over your power to somebody else. Sounds very Oprah-ish. But it's by metaphorically carrying your own weather that you don't allow other people's moods, insecurities, incompetencies to impact your own state of mind. You literally, metaphorically, carry your own weather with you. And you can't do that if you're not emotionally mature. I mean, we've all been there, right? You walk into the office, the boss passes you, slams the door, and you're convinced you're getting fired. It never could have been that he and his teenage boy had a fight this morning or that he's actually you know, worried about his job, right? It's not as much about you as you think it is, like in life. <laughs> and we all have these sort of paranoia mindsets where we focus everything in on us. It's actually rarely about you and stop making it about you. Everyone, including me, should stop making it so much about yourself. People who metaphorically carry their own weather this isn't something you just do. You mature into this. But I think that's what was so instrumental in me being able to carry my own weather, was to really understand what are my values. My first value is what is my purpose? I think it's parenthood now. I don't love it, but I think it's my responsibility. Yeah. And my key purpose now is, um, is parenting. The second one was health. What I put in my body, what I eat, my exercise, and my cholesterol, my, and all that. The, the, the next was um, integrity and loyalty. I'm way too loyal to people but I'm willing to get burned on it because loyalty is hugely important to me, both ways. Positivity, abundance, being a generous, abundant versus a scarce person. You get the point, right? So once I had my values, I could be a little less reactive to other people because my purpose and my value became a little more implicit. I kind of knew who I was. I was confident in my skills. I got options, not arrogant, but I was more confident in what my, what, what my values were. And so you could less hijack 
my emotional weather because you were being a jerk or you were late or you were insecure or you felt bad about your body image, whatever it was, I made it less about that. And I started to become more empathetic. And I realized she's struggling with something or he. I don't know what it is. I don't claim to understand it, but there's a reason why that person is behaving that way to me. Did I cause that or did they have that when they came to work this morning? You with me? And the more I started to realize what my values were and I shared them more, the less I was reactionary to people, the more I was less precocious and impulsive. Because up until that time, I was the kind of jerk that used to say, why just tell it like it is? Let the chips fall where they land. You met that person? It's horribly selfish. That's a coward. It takes a courageous and considerate person to care about another person. It is, it is amazingly selfish just to let words fly. Because I was a bit of a, gr a grenade thrower. And I would run. And it would, there was carnage over here. And I was known as being very courageous. Scott will say anything. Because I was a coward. By the time it landed, I was over here. Running that way. And I guess became to realize that this idea of sort of just saying what's on my mind and, and kind of uh, pinging around on my emotions was quite immature and it wasn't at all deliberate. And it felt good in the moment because it does feel good sometime, see what's on your mind. But who often regrets that an hour, two, three hours, two days later when your boss has to call you in and say, are you kidding me? You said what? Are you, are you kidding me? It never is worth it in the long term. So I think if you want to carry your own weather, don't make it all about you. Understand what your values are. Write them down. Prioritize them. And don't write them for anybody else. Don't write world peace. Don't write um, impeachment. Just write down things. Don't, and don't share them with anybody if you want to, right? A lot of times you write stuff down because you want it to look good to others. I don't care what you think about my values. Yeah. I don't care if you hate them. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. My values are my values, and your values are you. don't compromise your values for anybody. Yeah. Do you? No. Sometimes at Walmart where the kids are there, they like, want a toy, right? You're like, I'm not buying a toy, and you do. Um, but that's the key, I think, to carrying your emotional weather, is don't giving power over to anybody else. It doesn't mean you don't apologize. It doesn't mean you don't sometimes apologize for things you don't feel like you should. Because, can I go to that? Of course. The only apology is the excuse-free apology. What we usually do is say, Rachel, I'm sorry if you were offended in the meeting last week. I mean, it was so busy, and Jim just talks nonstop, and he drives me crazy, and accounting. That's not an apology. That's me just, like, protecting myself from any responsibility. Notice I said, Rachel, I'm sorry if you were offended. What I should say is, Rachel, I am sorry that I offended you last week. What I said was wrong and inexcusable. I apologize. I'm going to try to never do that again. Would you please forgive me? That takes courage. It takes kind of manning up or womaning up. It takes some self-confidence. Don't attach any disclaimers to your apologies. And sometimes you have to apologize because it's the right thing to do. Even when you're like, it's all her, that guy's insane. No, sometimes you just, you know what, I, I'm really sorry about what happened in last week's meeting. I feel bad that it's kind of made it awkward with us. And I take full responsibility for what I did. I apologize. Would you please forgive me? Most people will forgive you on the spot and a watershed will rush over them, if not right then, later on with shame on the fact that they had some culpability also. Not always, but most times. Every culture is different. Every emotional bank account is different. You've heard of this term? 
like your physical bank account, each of you has an emotional bank account with everybody else. And you make deposits and you make withdrawals. And you don't make deposits so that you can make withdrawals, right? You just, you, you naturally have a, a different level of emotional trust in your bank account with each person in this, in this complex. And you ought to think about it. So depending upon where your level of emotional bank account might be overdrawn, might be so abundant that you couldn't do anything to offend Rachel because implicitly she knows your intent, she knows your character, she knows your reputation, so she may forgive a lot of things from you. Depending upon where that balance is, you might have different courses of action. If it's low, you might send the person an email. which I'm not a big fan of that. I put nothing in email because I'm in an office or in a company. I don't write anything down. <laughs> not because I'm shady, it's just I don't want it subpoenaed. So I don't, I don't all my texts, I've been subpoenaed many times and yeah. welcome to public companies, yeah. right? But I don't put anything in email other than you're awesome. Um, <laughs> I might put it was the, what was the, the prayer? What was it? The divinely, this meaning yes, was, yes, 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 yeah, right. Yeah. I might put that. Yes, anyway, so you might send them an email, depending on where the trust is, to say, hey, I've noticed that things have been awkward between us and I wonder if we might meet across the street for coffee in the next couple of days. Might be appropriate, right? Or if, it, if the culture is such, walk over. I think the first is to take the first step. Get somebody in a comfortable position, not probably in a glass conference room. Maybe it's we walk down, I guess it's a residential, maybe you take a walk, whatever it is, right? But you wanna make sure that you're both in a environment where you feel equal and non-threatening and declare your intent. Declaring your intent is fundamental to avoiding and mitigating content. A dear friend of mine, Blay Lee, once said, this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my life, nearly all if not all conflict comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Not every organization can build an enterprise that's big enough to accommodate everybody's career plans, right? Rachel doesn't have 800 employees yet. But, so it's tough sometimes depending on the size of the organization. Sometimes the right thing to do is to move on and move out. That's okay. Because can I tell you, send-offs are more about those who stay than those who leave. How you treat those who leave is more about those who stay. So to, I, I take this in a different direction. I'm going to come back to your question. When someone comes to Rachel and says, Rachel, I've accepted a job over at Ralph Lauren. Mm -hmm. I'm moving to Manhattan. Rachel has a couple options. A lot of leaders shame them and take their paths away and say, I'm very, very excited for you. Um, uh, today is your last day. That's like 90% of corporate America. And in some cases, that's right, right? For security reasons or password control. In some cases, that is right. In the vast majority of cases, what should happen is, oh, I'm so sad for me, but I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited that you're able, you get the point, right? Meanwhile, she's probably thinking, Appropriately, oh, that's where you were last Thursday. That's where you were two Fridays ago when you missed the meeting. We were out interviewing. But you know what? We're all human. Mm -hmm. And Rachel wants what's best for you. And if being here isn't best for you, then it's not best for her. But it's very important that Rachel says, I wish you a ton of success. And in three years, I hope you bring all that new knowledge back to this organization. And in the meantime, refer in all of your high competence, high trust friends. We'd love to have them here. And when everybody hears that, they know that this is a safe place to work. It's a safe culture. And Rachel would rather have us in, but she's okay if where we need to be is out. Mm -hmm. So to your point, I don't think anybody should be shamed into doing anything that they don't want to do. 
a leader, is, a leader has two main jobs. To attract and retain quality talent. And in fact, I'm 51. I've been a formal leader of people for over 20 years. And it wasn't, Rachel, until I was 50 years old that I realized that my leadership strategy was to always hire smart people, but not smarter than me. Oof. And I learned this in the last year. Because I was too insecure as a leader to hire anybody who I thought was smarter than me. I hired smart people, but not people that I sm thought were smarter than me. And as a result, I misserved the organization, our investors, our shareholders, our clients, our employees, grossly for 20 years. I was too insecure as a leader. Because I wanted to save the day. I thought my job was to be the smartest person in the room, the most creative, the most well-read, the most well-spoken. You get the point. That wasn't my job. My job was not to be the genius in the room. My job was to be the genius maker of others in the room. That comes from Liz Wiseman, who wrote a book called Multipliers. Best leadership book I've ever read. So first, your job is to attract and retain talent. Your job is to hire people who are palpably smarter than you and let them thrive. Build the culture. That's your number one job. Hire people who are obviously smarter than you. Second, then, is to provide feedback on their blind spots. Because even those who are smarter than you have blind spots around their interpersonal skills, their time management, their productivity, their, whatever it is, right? And to do that in a safe place. But in order for you to provide good feedback, you have to move outside your comfort zone. You have to be able to discuss the undiscussables. And you probably should role play it with another senior person in the organization. Or better yet, because you're so small, perhaps some other organization. Or go to Rachel's house, whatever the rapport is, and say, hey, I've got an issue with Tina. Can I role play this with you? Right? Because then Rachel can comment on your body language. Gosh, that seemed really harsh. Or you said in four minutes, I'm not quite sure what you said in four minutes because you didn't get to the point, right? But practice it three or four times because you'll get better at it. People say to me, well, Scott, but you're so courageous. Yeah, I came out of the womb being courageous. No, I, I screwed up the first 70 of them. But with some practice, you'll get better at them. And then I think most importantly, you have to model it. You have to actually show people that you also are open to feedback. So make feedback your brand. Solicit it. On what is it, ask someone, what's it like to work with me on a project? What's it like to be in a professional relationship with me? Ask your wife or your husband, what's it like to be married to me? You'll learn a lot of insight. And the more self-aware you are in your own blind spots, the more you'll be willing to accept feedback. And when your team knows that you're willing to accept it and not refute it or dispel it or talk yourself out of it, if you choose to implement it, it's your own choice. But you have to set the conditions where it's safe for others to tell you the truth about you. Because if you don't make it safe, nobody will be lured back into that pond twice. So when you do ask for feedback, write it down, close your lips. You can ask for clarifying questions, right? So when I do that, what's usually happening? Is it in a finance meeting? Is Rachel in the room? Is it on a Saturday? Just ask for some feedback. Say, thank you for sharing that with me. You have to make it safe for others to tell you the truth, otherwise they'll lie to you. Because most people are cowards. And that isn't a character flaw, that's a personality trait. The more safe it is you make it for them to tell you things, the more they will realize they have to do the same. As a leader, you have to be willing to be the model. So I do think that's important to have, not to divide your life between personal and professional, but I think it's important to just maintain your reputation high throughout so that when you are promoted that it doesn't feel awkward. 
I think that you have to be careful about all your conversations. Your reputation is merely a collection of all of your decisions in life. So you can't all of a sudden act like the boss one day when you were like the colleague the next, right? Um, I think it is a slippery slope on having friendships in the workplace because that's what makes a great culture. At the end of the day though, you can have friendships and it still be very clear, this is my professional responsibility. And I have to have this conversation with you or this has to be done. There's no latitude or allowance. I think it should be a healthy culture. I think there, there, there's, a, there's a hierarchy here, is there not? Absolutely. Yep, and at the end of the day, the hierarchy is important because we are responsible to each other and to each other. And I'm just fine with that. So I think it's important. It doesn't mean you can't go to lunch with your team and joke and talk about you know, your marital problems or whatever it is. Maybe not, you get the point, right? Or you know, where Thanksgiving is. But I think you have to be careful about drawing the line too because in the end of the day, you may have to have a high courage conversation that may more difficult be made by the relationship yeah. as well. So I think it takes sometimes holding back, not in an artificial way. You, you, you kind of learn that, right? You, it, it's not something you're, you seem to be young to me, at least younger than me. It will become more natural. It is a struggle. It's not yeah. easy. I can't say here's what you do, right? It's just, um, I do think it's important to recognize you're responsible to each other both um, sideways and hierarchically. And as, and as important as it is for you to be the leader, for those who are reporting to you, don't take advantage of that. Don't place your leader in an uncomfortable position. Don't manipulate them. Don't make them have to choose their level of interpersonal trust, right? Take responsibility for your actions as well. I think one of, the, one of my best experiences as a leader is when someone comes to me and confesses their own issue. Because as a leader, the longer you hide your issues, the less you give me the latitude to help you solve them. Yeah. If something is late or a client's not paying or, you, or, or a, well, I don't know your business model, I know some of it, but the more you hoard information or hoard your own insecurities, the more you disempower me to help you. The sooner you own up to it and confess it and tell me, the more options I have. But the longer you wait, the more you back me into a corner. Yeah. So everybody become more and more self-aware. You know what you should do? Sit down with your boss and say, that guy who talked really fast up there, I'm gonna ask the questions he said. What's it like to work with me? Yeah. What's it like to work on a project with me? What are some areas that I could improve on? She'll tell you. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.